I'm delighted to open the Word of God with you, and so if you will, take your Bibles and let's look at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in the seventh chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 7. And uh, what a wonderful place to enter the, the life of Jesus in this section. As you know, uh, anytime you read the Gospels, you notice that as he gets closer to Jerusalem, the hostilities against him just continue to rise. And it's no wonder, because as Jesus taught and ministered to the crowds and the masses, there was an obvious difference between the way he treated those whose hearts had been shattered, whose lives were sin-broken, and the way that he treated those who reflect really um, the opposite of that psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 131. Jesus treated the proud opposite that he treated those who had been broken down in their lives. This was his pattern. In fact, he would severely rebuke those who had lived as though they had no sin. And that was the litmus test. If you came to Jesus Christ and if he met you in the, in the hillsides of Galilee or around Judea and Jerusalem, and your heart was shattered by the fact that you saw your weakness and you saw your desperation... There was an open hand and an open heart from the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, if you came and you, you might think that you have made a mistake once in your life, but, but largely God should accept you if in fact there is a God. If you came to Jesus and you were suspicious of anyone who was saying to you that you have to admit you're a sinner, Jesus had a different response. He was always sifting the crowds. He was always exposing whose heart was softening to their need for a Savior and whose was becoming proud and stubborn. Jesus did this all throughout his ministry. And Luke, of course, sets up this whole dynamic coming into the section that we're going to look at. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through the end of the chapter. But he had just earlier rebuked the self-absorbed Pharisees because they were They were juveniles, he said. It didn't matter how he came. He could come kindly, and they would say that, you know, that he was too soft and and wasn't adequate on that end. If he came with a strong word, they would say he's he's too strong. It didn't really matter what song he played. They wanted a different song, a different tune. Back in verses 31 to 34, he makes that clear to them. And gospel, the gospel of Matthew records that Jesus said at one point in Matthew 11, Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And we sometimes read that phrase and we think, what does that mean? Well, what Jesus was referring to is the wisdom of God to only reveal salvation to the soft heart, to the heart that was broken and knew that it was sinful, and to hide the gospel from those who came with pride and stubbornness. That was the infinite genius of God, Jesus said. And wisdom would be vindicated by all her children. Anybody who comes to Christ with a soft heart and they end up in Christ by salvation, it vindicates the wisdom of God to reveal it only to those with soft hearts and never to those who were proud because the proud don't think they're sinners. And then what Luke does here is he gives us a living illustration of this. He shows the contrast by a little scene that occurs in the home of a Pharisee, a Pharisee named Simon. Now, Simon was inviting Jesus to his home for dinner, and you'll notice here that verse 36 indicates that he'd, 
asked him to dine with him. It's interesting how Luke connects dots. Back in verse 33, John the Baptist dined with no one, and the Pharisees said he was demon-possessed. Verse 34, Jesus said he came dining with anyone and everyone who would listen to him, and they said he was defiled. And Luke then brings this illustration in and says, oh, a Pharisee was requesting Jesus to dine with him. So what's this going to be like? What's this Pharisee's heart going to be like? So follow along as I read verses 36 through verse 50. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with, her, with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, and that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's an amazing story. It's an account we've heard over and over again, but its truths are rich and most importantly, the contrast here is sharp. It is very sharp, and Luke intends it to be so in recording this event in the life of our Lord. Because what you have in verse 36 is the invitation of a teacher, but not a genuine invitation. It's a charade. It's a smug charade. And rather ironic, notice it says one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. We just heard in the text earlier how the Pharisees had been accusing Jesus of being defiled because he would dine with outcasts and the worldly. Jesus never sinned. He never could be legitimately accused of a sinful deed or thought or motive. But because he would have meals with anyone who would listen to him, including avowed pagans like Matthew and his cronies, the religious elite then would stand around and slander Jesus and say he was defiled for doing so. And so now you can see the hypocrisy. If Jesus is defiled for eating with sinners, why does Simon, the Pharisee, the Holy One, invite Jesus into his home? 
Well, Jesus is a visiting rabbi, and he, he's certainly to be respected for being a rabbi, but here Simon puts a charade on. Pharisees would never dine with sinners or tax collectors or outcasts for fear of defiling their own personal righteousness. But here's what they'd say when confronting Jesus on the issue. In Luke chapter 5, verse 29 and following, they make some comments that are very interesting and make this particular account ironic. Luke 5, 29, notice what they say. Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, that is Matthew. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, Why do you eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do that? They were grumbling. Apparently, in order to appear respectful in this particular section, at this particular time, he invites Jesus, and it is a phony invitation. Why else would he be be willing to risk being seen with Jesus? Why else would he risk the defilement that would come to him if he sees Jesus already as a fraud? So he invites him, and then what happens is absolutely staggering. There is not only in this moment of irony a compassionate visit, a compassionate visit. Behold, verse 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, She kept weeping and wetting his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house, was reclining at the table like anyone would. This is a very, very wonderful visit from the Lord. And yet here you have a vile woman who is coming into the house. And I love how God cuts through all of the pretense. And the force of the spiritual reality is brought to the surface. Behold, some of your translations say. It is, a, it is an indication by the gospel writer that you're to, you're to pay attention to this and not miss what's about to happen. This is a shock that a sinner would come into Simon's eating chamber, let alone his house. And God uses this to sort of cut through all of Simon's pretense. Listen up, this will shock you. This is a woman. A woman wouldn't enter unless invited, and they were never part of an official meal of the Jewish leaders. And notice she's described as a sinner. It's unclear which town this occurred in, but the city leaders knew this woman. So clearly, by indication, the town knows her to be a particular person in the town known for what she does. And it's implied that the general population knew her. If someone later were reading this, it would not be needing explanation to say she was a sinner. Everyone knew that this was a generic reference to a woman whose lifestyle was wicked. Commentators often try to soften the description simply because the word sinner is common enough, but when used in various contexts, the picture comes into focus, and that is no different here. Verse 39, you notice how Simon is disgusted over the woman even touching Jesus. If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was who is touching him, if he were a prophet, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. That's the disgust level here. 
And she comes from the same crowd described by the Pharisees back in chapter 5, verse 30. Matthew's old band of violent criminals, thieves, and prostitutes. That's the crowd she comes from. She's part of the underbelly of the culture and the town. In fact, the word for tax collectors was often spoken in the same breath with the actual Greek word for prostitute. As in Matthew 21, 32, John the Baptist came to you in a way of righteousness and you didn't believe him, but the tax gatherers and prostitutes did believe him. There, it was common knowledge that those people hung around one another. It was big business. It was wickedness. It was the darkest part of your town. And so she's well known for having lived a sad, wanton, immoral life. Whether she makes her living by it, we don't know. She's viewed and probably been publicly branded as hopelessly defiled and incurable and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and religion itself in Judaism wasn't really going to reach out to her anymore. She seems to have been an outcast at that level. And so there's a sense in which she is daring here. How dare she come barging into this pious and undefiled chamber? But there are some things we notice about her that reflect what is in her heart. And and we might just make the point here that you can always tell when a Christian um, understands the nature of their sin and the depth of their salvation. We might even ask the question to us this morning, have we gotten over the reality of having been redeemed? Do we live in such a way that people know we haven't gotten over it? Do we become so sophisticated in our Christian life that it seems that that first Love and passion and absolute overwhelmed joy at being forgiven has faded. We notice some things about the way she came and, and really they are reminders to us how the Christian ought to live because it's a conviction of the heart in these ways that she came. It ought to be the conviction of our heart that we understand from what we were saved and just how sinful we were when the grace of God exploded into our life. First of all, she searched for Jesus, verse 37. She came searchingly. When she learned, it says in verse 37, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She obviously had friends in low places. This is not a woman whose friends go beyond a certain strata in society. Perhaps some who'd been with her when Jesus was teaching or healing the disease, maybe she knew some of those friends. Up to that point, she hadn't repented of her sinful life to follow Christ. But now, it seems that a work has been done, and she's at the end of her life of, sin- of insanity. And she is at the end of her moral rope. Guilt has simply become too great to bear. And at some point, just prior to coming in to see Jesus, her hopelessness had flooded her soul. And she she simply had to find the one whom she had reached out to in prayer, and the guilt burden had been lifted. And her mind had been changed, and she'd left that lifestyle, and it was brand new. She had just left it. Everybody still saw her that way. And she searches Jesus out. I want to know where he is. I've got to find him. I've got to thank him. I've got to come to him in gratitude and worship. You know, if you understand from what you have been saved and how sovereign and marvelous the mercy and grace of God is, there's always going to be this undercurrent in your life, especially as you learn more and more about the riches of salvation, an undercurrent that grows and grows. It's a faster and swifter river in your heart to worship Christ. And you will search out any opportunity to do so. 
just like this woman. I want to meet the man who gave me rest in my conscience. Notice how bold she is in verse 37. And standing behind him at his feet. This is absolutely staggering. She doesn't address the host that we know of. She doesn't sheepishly ask Jesus any questions to check his response. She's not even concerned how the house might respond or how Jesus, the great prophet, might respond. She knows her Savior has forgiven her. And so she may have even pushed past the house servant or two just to get into the chamber. The chamber would have been somewhere in the middle where they could recline. She pushes past the entrance into the chamber. She is bold. She will not be stopped. And she stands right behind Jesus' feet. They would recline, as you know, and they would lean back on an elbow, feet out to their right or to their left. And then they would sort of like uh, a fan, sort of fan out that way around the table. And then they would be close enough to talk, eat some food, be resting on that on that arm or that shoulder. She stood right there at the base of where Jesus' feet were. She came in went right to that place. And notice, she is willing and ready and prepared to worship Him at cost. doesn't matter the cost. Notice verse 37, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, muron. It could have been, it's it's a Greek term, it could have been any one of a number of costly fragrances. But this is contrasted with the everyday oil that would have been for the refreshment, like we use lotion, for dry skin and refreshment, something to refresh a guest, some hand lotion or something to refresh them, some refreshing drink to give to a guest. In this custom of the day, oil was used, as Jesus mentions later. This is contrasted with with the everyday oil. This is probably... Something like myrrh oil, very, very expensive. Something she'd paid money for and had a supply of. And it was kept in common jars. Uh, It was kept in special places as opposed to the common jars in which the everyday oil was kept. And this is a costly flask. Luke makes mention that in this scene, this is an alabaster vial. This is a costly flask. She spent some money here. She saved it up. She uses it for uh, likely her old industry of immorality. It was worth a lot of money. And she is willing to lay it down on the altar of comfort. Her comfort is about to go in terms of her economics. She has put a lot of resources into this. And her reputation is about to go because she's just come into this Pharisee's home. She's not hiding who she was. Everybody's aware of who she is, but she could hide in dark corners and and do her business and her immoral deeds in dark places. Here she's in the light of the parlor. She's in the eating chamber with the most important men in town, and her dignity is gone. She doesn't care about her dignity. She doesn't care about her reputation, and she certainly doesn't care about her economic comfort. This is how she comes to the one who has saved her. You see, how do you know her dignity is gone? Well, look what she does. She stands behind him at his feet, weeping, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. This is an absolute disgrace for a woman. An absolute disgrace. She's desperate. She comes weeping. This is the word for loud sobbing. So here, picture it. She's standing at Jesus' feet, and she's sobbing, and then she falls down toward his feet with her face, and she is in this convulsive sobbing. 
And she's willing to bring the full contempt of the most pious Pharisee upon her head just to come and worship the one who has given her freedom. And she wants to honor him. But she doesn't dare look up to his face, so she bows down to kiss his feet and anoints them with the perfume. Her attitude is the undercurrent, the white-hot flame, if you will, of of joy and rejoicing over having been known as a sinner, to know her own heart as a sinner, to see herself rightly before the Savior, and to know His free forgiveness. By the way, she is doing, as we'll find out in a moment, what the servant of the house should have done with the everyday oil. And so here you notice she's humble. She considers herself nothing lower than the everyday servant of the house who does that dirty job. She is bowing and kissing his feet. There's reverence here. There's worship. There's humility. Everything opposite of Psalm uh, 131, of, of those who would be opposite of Psalm 131 when the psalmist walks up to Jerusalem, when the people of Israel sing that song of ascent going up to Jerusalem. Lord, I don't want to deal with things too difficult for me. I just know I can't come with a proud heart. She's just like one who went to the temple steps of Israel knowing that they, they are nothing before God. She's reverent. And she's brokenhearted. She's penitent. She comes to Jesus penitent, sorrowful for her old life. She's in front of a man who's undefiled. Jesus, the righteous one, perfect, undefiled, sinless. And she knows she's at his feet and yet she is this woman who, whom no one should touch. She doesn't imagine that anyone would come near such a defiled conscience and a defiled life. To her, nothing was pure. To, to him, everything is pure. She was penitent in the same room with a prophet, and she's weeping. In the story, what is equally shocking as this scene is the silence of Jesus. He says nothing as this is unfolding. He says nothing to her. It's it's as though God Himself, in the Son of God, the God-man, is speaking volumes to her in a silent receiving and accepting of her humble faith. Her actions are precisely what he's going to use as a contrast to his host. And this is like the Lord. When you come to him and you are broken and shattered and you've never gotten over having been forgiven for your life and for who you were, you're not proud about it. You've been a Christian maybe one day or maybe 10 years or maybe 75 years and you're at the season's end of your Christian walk. And this kind of heart is exactly what the Lord receives. He receives someone who is humble and contrite and who trembles at His word. Who understands that we were nothing. We are nothing. We've not tried to be anything. There's no public rebuke here from the greatest prophet on the earth in Simon's eating chamber. There's no public rebuke. Jesus is silent. He's gracious. And He accepts her indicating that his forgiveness was real and free. It's wonderful. But there is a verbal dialogue that takes place. And we see that in 
this next section. Verse 39 indicates that when, Pharise- when Simon the Pharisee saw this, he was the one who invited Jesus, and when he saw this, he said to himself, so this is his mind and his heart, not sure whether he mumbled anything quietly or not. The text just indicates that he said it to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. This is the blindness of the Pharisee. He reasons like a fool. And so Jesus has to say something to him about it. He is saying, look, he's not a prophet, and I've just proven it. I've invited him to my house out of respect for the local rabbi who's in town. I've invited him. I've given him a meal. Hey, isn't that respectful enough? And now I've proven it once and for all. Everyone can see it. He's not a prophet because no prophet of God is going to let this immoral woman touch him, let alone come in here without some rebuke. It's also interesting that Simon hadn't said anything to her either. He's just in the shock of the moment, and he turns his attention away from the woman whom he, as a prideful Pharisee, would typically rebuke, and he turns his attention to Jesus in order to give an internal rebuke to this man whom he's invited. Just the smugness and the pride and the irony of contrasting people here. So that's the reasoning of the blind Pharisee who's thinking like a fool. Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. This is Jesus' reply. And Simon, of course, trying to maintain the pretense welcomes what Jesus has to say he's not welcoming it as salvific he's not welcoming it with repentance or penitence he's welcoming it in the normal course of general respect because Simon is always preserving himself the proud are always preserving their reputation they're always keeping up a pretense whenever religious people are around whenever Christians are around who know the gospel the proud are always trying to keep up some religious pretense they're always trying to act as though they, they're not as bad as, as is obvious by circumstances. Oh, say it, teacher. Say what you have to say. And so Jesus tells this little story. A moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. That's obvious. Look, if you have a greater debt and that debt has been removed, then the person who forgave that debt, you feel indebted. You, you have a sense of obligation to them. You, you have a love for them, a, a, a wonderful affinity for who they are. How could they have wiped your slate clean? How could they have seen fit out of compassion to lift the weight off of you? Every day your debt is churning in your conscience. Every day your collectors are calling. Every day you're frightened and looking over your shoulder because you're under a cloud of suspicion. It never leaves. You go to bed at night restless. You wake up churning and restless and someone comes along and says, I've, I've wiped your debt clean. Well, in the simple analogy, the Pharisee knows exactly what Jesus' point would be. Well, surely the one who had a greater debt, and it was completely wiped off the books. Surely they would, would want to reach out in a greater way. Surely they would be more grateful, more loving. In fact, if that benefactor had a need, surely the one who had received the benefit would reach out to them in a more profound way because 
they had had their burden lifted and their burden was greater as they saw it. So Jesus then puts forth a contrast. He said to him, you've judged correctly. And then turning toward the woman as the illustration, he makes this contrast and it is profound. Simon, do you see this woman? Well, that's an interesting way to address it. Clearly, Simon saw the woman, but he's saying, I want to use her as an illustration. He's turning toward the woman, gesturing, and verbally saying, I want you to look at her for a moment. Set your eyes on the woman whom you would rather turn away from. Don't look at your servants and signal to your, the people who are hosting the dinner with you to come and remove her. Don't do that. Look at her. Set your eyes on her for a moment. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and she's wiped them with her hair. So the first part of the contrast has to do with the custom of cleansing. The custom of cleansing. When you hosted someone, you gave them relief. You, you set about the business of washing the dirt off of their weary journey and, and the arid climate and the dust and cracked feet and difficult skin and even those conditions continuing as you're a weary traveler. They might even get to the need of medication. There was this custom of washing that went on. It was for everyone that came into your home because they're in your home. Hospitality and comfort was absolutely essential. It was a harsh environment. When you hosted a meal, even for a, a passerby, the, you had a servant there and a basin and a towel, and you would wash the feet, much like we see in John 13 when Jesus gets up to take the servant's job and wash the disciples' feet. It was customary be, between neighbors and, and people that were mere acquaintances. And seen through the custom of cleansing, the contrast becomes very sharp because Simon didn't even offer that and yet Jesus was a rabbi, a respected visitor. Moreover, Simon had invited him for a meal. And when you invited a rabbi for a meal, you, you didn't just wash his feet. You, you brought out the whole entourage. You, if you were the hosting Pharisee and another rabbi from Jerusalem or Judea or wherever, even one from uh, the, the Nazareth background, he would come into town. He might even be the one to read the scriptures in the synagogue. He might even be scheduled to be the one who gives the, the teaching as Jesus was often uh, asked to do as a visiting rabbi. He was learned. He was Jewish. He was in the line of rabbis who were respected. And he was a traveling rabbi, giving a message of love and mercy and forgiveness. Simon wanted him in the house. He would have rolled it out. Jesus says, do you see this woman? Even in the basic custom of cleansing that would be for an everyday person, you've not given that to me. And yet she has not even taken up the basin and the towel over there by the door. She has come to me and wet my feet with her tears. You didn't give me the everyday water for an everyday visitor. I'm a respected rabbi. You didn't give me even that. You didn't go beyond the custom as you would for any normal rabbi coming. But she, in disgrace and self-humiliation, 
hasn't even used the water. She's used her tears, and she hasn't used the towel. She has put herself in the lowest place and used her hair. And then there was the greeting. Jesus mentions the greeting. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And, and Jesus would have been kissed on his forehead. He typically would have been kissed on his forehead. That would have been the greeting for a rabbi. That is the typical greeting on the cheeks or the forehead for any visitor that comes into town. The normal customary greeting in that culture. Simon didn't even give that. He had a cordiality inviting Jesus to dinner, but no greeting. I wonder what that moment must have been like as Simon finally sees Jesus coming. He backed away from the door instead of going out front to greet him. They would go out front. They would greet you at the door. That's what, that's what you do. Can you imagine going to your friend's house and you're, uh, you've been invited to a nice meal and you ring the doorbell and, uh, and you know, no one opens the door. They, you just hear from the other room, come in. Now, you might do that with family. But, but normally, someone comes to open the door, even for an everyday person who's there all the time. You open the door, hey, how are you? That's the normal greeting. If it were a special guest, you'd both be at the door, maybe even your family at the door. Sometimes when your pastor comes over, the house has just been freshly cleaned and everything's sprayed. He can smell it. He knows what you just did. <laughs> and he's afraid to open that hall closet because everything's going to come flying out that mom just threw in there including one of the kids that got lost in the group going in. None of that was done. How shocking that must have been, even to Simon's house servants, to see that a visiting rabbi received no greeting. It was just distant cordiality. And the present tense verbs here about the woman are unmistakable. She, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. The continual gratitude of the woman contrasted with the distant cordiality of Simon. And then there was the custom of bestowing honor. The custom of bestowing honor. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. The everyday guests got the everyday oil and it would be a refreshment. For a rabbi, he'd get the everyday oil, but it would be a a ceremonial anointing. You came in, there were ceremonial aspects. Why? Because you were seen as an honored guest. We didn't just hand you the flask of everyday oil so that you could put some on yourself. The, the, the special honored guest received a moment there in the entryway where the oil was placed upon you ceremonially to note your distinctiveness to this event, your, your rank, or, or somehow your learnedness. In any case, you were honored highly, and the oil was put upon you even ceremonially. Jesus says, you gave me no anointing, even the regular oil of refreshment. Wow. You didn't even give me the lotion of the day for my cracked hands. Here I am reclining at your table. I've had no washing of my feet. I'm still dirty from the day. I've had no 
lotion for my cracked feet and hands. I've had no lotion for the dust that has settled on my hair. The oil of that day was perfect for getting all the dust off of you and refreshing you. You put it on your neck, you put it on your face. When you go to Israel today, they take you to these places where they make olive oil and you go in and, and they do all that to you. You, know, you just put it everywhere. It's to refresh you in an arid, very harsh climate. Simon, I'm sitting here at your dinner table reclining under your pretense. My feet aren't washed. I've got no refreshing oil on me. There was no ceremony. You didn't even greet me at the door. No kiss that is customary. And by contrast, here is a sinful woman whom you won't even touch. And you've concluded I'm not a prophet because I allow her to touch me. And yet in the customary way of cleansing, she is washing my feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair in self-humiliation. She's not only greeted me, but she's kissing my feet as if I were royalty to be worshipped. And in terms of oil, she has brought perfume and she's not willing to anoint my head because she's not willing to look up. She's anointing my feet with perfume because she knows that I brought her something. Blessed are the feet of him who brings good news. She can't get over the fact that this holy man, this righteous one who's connected with God would reach out to her. She takes this costly perfume and bestows the most honor upon him. See, you can tell what someone believes about their forgiveness by how they respond to Jesus Christ in worship and how they offer their lives to Him in worship. You know, sometimes Christians get in some sort of season of life where they're on cruise control. And they, they can't be bothered with the worship of God's people in any meaningful way. They just show up or not at all. Or they get into a season of life where they can't be bothered with particular sacrifices the Lord asks us to do. I mean, after all, what the Lord's been giving them in their Christian life has been a season of trials. And if God's going to have a season of trials come into my life, then, then it's painful. And, and out of the pain of that, I've just sort of turned inward. Oh yeah, I, I love Jesus, but don't ask me to forgive my spouse. I love Jesus, but don't ask me to obey him in this very difficult area that costs me. I love Jesus, but don't ask me to, to give my testimony in a Psalm 96 way where I'm telling of the wonderful deeds of God. Don't ask me to do that. You know, when I get to heaven, I, I want to meet this woman. I want to find out what happened to her afterwards. Sometimes as believers, we lose the white-hot flame of, of what we've been saved from and, and an understanding of our sin. I don't know if you do it, but you ought to course through just what you were like prior to the mercy of God exploding into your heart. You ought to often tell that to family members. We just have a, a regular thing in our family all the time. We're, we're constantly thinking through and talking about the great grace and wonder that God would save us. 
we are not only unworthy, but even after salvation, which would have been enough, the Lord then gave us his word, gave us his spirit, and continues to teach us and shepherd us and minister his grace to us. Even though we spurn him, we, we push his hand away, we, we take his truth and we squander it. But our God is not a, gener- is not a stingy God, he's a generous God. And we can't seem to be as generous back. What are you willing to give Christ if he asks you for it? What would it be based on? What would your offering be based on? Jesus says of this woman that, that her worship, the way she came, the self-deprecation in which she came, the willingness to sacrifice what she brought when she came, the reputation she threw out the window, the lack of concern for anything going on around her, just to bring homage to the Savior. It was rooted, Jesus says, in how much she understood of her past life and the grace of God to save her from it. She doesn't look back on her salvation and think she was clever enough to see good from evil and finally choose good. She doesn't look back on her Christian life, on her salvation, and imagine somehow that she was good enough and better to get out of that. And maybe the earthly consequences were really what she wanted relief from, and so now she's, she's been smart enough to find the, the best healer in the land and go after him. There, there is absolutely no credit she takes. She doesn't think of her salvation in that way at all, Jesus says. In fact, verse 47 drives home the point for this reason Jesus says I say to you I love that he says I say to you Simon her sins which are many he is taking everything Simon thought and putting it in a contrast to Simon himself wow she's a sinner why is he why is he allowing her to touch him Simon Her sins, which are many. I acknowledge to you, she's a sinner. I acknowledge to you in the room, she is exactly what everyone thinks she is, and she knows it. But her sins, which you won't touch, her sins, which you won't reach out to, her sins, which you will not offer the gospel to, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. How do I know? She loved much. There it is. You can always tell what a person thinks about what they've been saved from by how much they love. By how much they love Christ. How that reflects itself in our lives and how much we love others and how much that reflects itself in our willingness to reach out sacrificially to others. It reflects itself in our dedication and devotion to Christ and His Word and His voice in His revelation. It's it's reflected in how much we dedicate ourselves to the people of God in our in, in, who are put in our sphere of influence, our family, believers, the church, and then the lost around us. How badly do you want someone else to know the love of Christ and the relief of his com- complete and full forgiveness? It's reflected in the way you speak about the world. Sometimes in evangelicalism, churches can get so so huddled together and, and so fearful about the encroaching evil of the, cult, the culture that we sort of look at the world with a contempt. And I don't mean we're hating what God hates. That would be right to do. I mean we're actually hating those people who are taking away our, our safety and our security. 
That's not what forgiveness in Christ would produce. Forgiveness in Christ, when you know what you've been forgiven, you know how much you've been forgiven, you look back and you know what, just what a kind of a sinner you were, whether you were religious or irreligious, then you can't look at the lost without having the same heart this woman has. I'll bring anything. I'll do anything to see you honored, Lord. I'll give anything, whatever it costs me, to go where you will be exalted and where you will be praised. I'll reach out to any soul across the aisle, no matter if they're an irritation to me or not. I'll seek anyone's forgiveness I've sinned against because you have forgiven me and I will forgive anyone who has sinned against me for any offense because those debts that are incurred against me are minuscule nothings compared to the the way that I was blaspheming your name apart from you and the way that I have betrayed the throne of God himself and yet you have reached down and forgiven me. There it is right there. We must take inventory. And Jesus gives us the basis for the inventory right here. How much do you love? Because how much you love is an indication of how much you believe you've been forgiven. And he says here, she loved much. That's an indication of the knowledge she has that her sins are many. And yet she has been forgiven all of them. And then the stinger to Simon, verse 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That's right. The Jewish leaders, by the time Jesus was on the earth in his earthly ministry, didn't believe they needed forgiveness. They didn't believe they needed Christ. They loved their Messiah, but they thought their Messiah would come and acknowledge their holiness. They thought their Messiah would come and not only be a militant political leader who would take over and and defeat Rome, this oppressive nation that it was over them. They not only thought he would do that, and, and at one point when he fed the 5,000 or the probably upwards of 25,000 on the hillside, they tried to make him king right there. They were going to march him down to Jerusalem and, and make him king right then and there. You have that kind of power? You could take care of our economics? You could feed us meals? We'd never have to think about a, a breakfast again? then you need to go down and be king and we need to be your people and let's take this thing by storm and get rid of Rome. But they not only wanted that, they wanted a spiritual acknowledgement. A Messiah who would come and say, yes, oh, you're already holy. I can't believe that these people haven't followed your example, how great and holy you are. They thought the Messiah would come and acknowledge that. And when Jesus didn't acknowledge it, they they grinded their teeth and were in turmoil in their heart and bitterness against him and hatred and they plotted to kill him. And they even at one point called him the Antichrist. They said, you do what you do by the power of Satan. When you heal people, when you raise the dead, all these miracles you do, you do them by the power of Satan. That was the day that they called him Antichrist, Satanic. And you know his famous response. Well, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand if Satan were divided against himself. If my whole three years of reaching out to people with the gospel and seeing them healed and come to me and I've been their leader and their teacher and it's, it's basically been their hope of hopes and they've been forgiven of all their sin. If Satan's been doing that work too, then he'd be divided against himself. How ridiculous is your accusation? 
It exposes your pride. Basically, it doesn't matter how I come or with what message I come. You're not going to find forgiveness because you won't acknowledge that you need it. I had the blessed privilege a couple of few weeks ago of preaching at another dear friend's church, a mutual friend of Shane and I, Carrie Hardy and Winston Salem, and we were up there, and there happened to be an older couple who've been lifelong friends of ours. Uh, this wonderful, sweet senior saint and his wife, and they were there. And um, she sat down with me for a moment just to catch up, and and I was blessed to have them there. And and uh, they were former Grace Church. They were founding members of Grace Community Church where Dr. MacArthur is, and so they're lovely folks, and they're always encouraging me, and she sat down, and within, you know, five minutes, she was already telling me this encouraging story about her mother. Her mother uh, had recently come to Christ, 92 years old, and near death, and she'd been anti-God all her life and hostile to the gospel, and here this precious daughter of hers had shared the gospel with her over and over again. And at random, when, when she'd heard the gospel many, many times and never wanted a, a moment of it, this dear saint went on, on a whim, driving by the place where she stays, and just said, I'm just going to go in. I know she's going to be hostile to me, but I know she's nearing the weakest points of her life. My heart is broken. I'm going to go in. She went in, and she said to her mom, hey, I, I just want to come by and talk to you one more time about the truth. I've been praying for you. And, and her mother said, I'm at peace with God. And and this sweet daughter said, no, 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 no. You, I, I understand you think you're at peace with God, but you've been hostile to him all your life. The only way to be, peace, be at peace with God is to acknowledge that you are what he says you are in Scripture, a sinner deserving of condemnation. You must acknowledge that, Mom. And she said, I acknowledge that. I mean, to her daughter's shock, after all those decades of sharing Christ with her, and it was nothing but hostility. She said, I acknowledge that. And it was a shock. And this sweet woman said to her mother, I, I got to know for sure. <laughs> I mean, what are you saying? Are you saying that you acknowledge that you need Christ's forgiveness? Yes, I need it. And so she prayed with her mother. And her mother was saved and died shortly after in Christ. It was a thief on the cross moment. But here in this dear saint was this same truth. You cannot come to Christ and keep anything about yourself as if you are offering something of yourself to God. That is impossible. And this is exactly what Jesus says to Simon. Look, you gave me none of those basic things because you're sitting here in pretense. You don't give me any of the love she gives me. You don't show any of the homage and the the respect and the honor because... I'm a rabbi to you who claims to be the Messiah. You don't believe you need anything from me. And it doesn't matter how many miracles I do. You've seen them all. You're inviting me near, nearing the end of my ministry. You've seen them all. Power over demons, power over nature, power over any disease, power over the natural elements. I can produce food. You know all the miracles. You've even seen some face to face. For you, that is not proof that I'm the Messiah, For you, that is something to rail against and put to death. Well, Simon, it's obvious. I'm sitting here in your house having a meal, and you won't touch this woman. I reach out to her. Why? Because she is worshiping me. 
because her sins, which are many, are forgiven. You, on the other hand, you show that you don't believe you need forgiveness. And so you love very little. Beloved, there's no such thing as a truly saved believer who isn't always needing to come back and be recalibrated by your conversion. To rehearse who you were and from whom you were saved, the wrath of Almighty God. To recalibrate your mind in the wondrous works of the Lord. To come to the worship of God in the Psalm 131 sense. I am not haughty. I have nothing to say. I bring nothing. I come to you knowing that you are grander than me. You are more majestic than me. And yet you would condescend and reach down to me in forgiveness so that my unclean conscience is now clean? Oh, Lord, Why do I hold grudges over this person? Why do I have disputes with these people because of strife and jealousy in my heart? Why am I envious of this particular lifestyle? Why do I covet these things? If all I had from you was forgiveness of all my sins, it's over. I'm done. I love you. That's all I need to bring homage and worship. That's all I need to respond to your commands. That's it. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Here you have a group of people reclining at the table with Simon, also invited guests. Notice they they don't notice the woman and what she did. They don't even care about what Jesus just said. They They haven't thought it through because they too are like their host. They don't think they need him either. How do you know that? None of them were worshiping him. None of them were saying, hey, Simon, you didn't give him the customary greeting or refreshment. I'm going to go do that. What are you doing? He's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. What are you, there, are nobody, there are no others around the table saying any of that. They begin to say to themselves and to one another, who is this man who even forgives sins? By what authority do you forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. They, they totally missed the point. She believes in Christ. It produces brokenness and humility because it's real faith. It's real faith and repentance that God grants. And when he grants it, there's real humility, real brokenness, real worship. There's real love. And it's searching. It wants to know the Savior It's a kind of love that's bold. It gets past reputation. doesn't hide reputation. Listen, when you come to Christ, Christ knows everything. Why would you try to put on some pretense for other people? When it comes time to being a part of the body of Christ and the Lord asks you to serve someone, why would you not reach out willingly and serve them? Because Christ has served you in a way that you you could never quantify, you could never measure in all of eternity. We need a recalibration. It is how we love that reflects what we know about our previous life of sin and the forgiveness of Christ that we have been given freely. It is our love for Christ and for others that tells the real story, beloved. We need to be burning with that white-hot flame in us, never having gotten over what we've been given in Christ. Amen? Never gotten over it. 
Have you gotten over it? Have you lost sight of it? Have you entered a season where Christianity is more about just appearances and some drudgery and barely surviving and coping trials? Or is it a fervent life that says to the Lord Jesus, just give me an opportunity to pay a cost. Give me an opportunity to come and worship you. Give me an opportunity to set my reputation aside so that yours is exalted. Give me an opportunity to honor you for the way you have saved me from what was so dishonorable. You've given me forgiveness. Lord, just give me an opportunity to treat you like that. Give me the grace to do it, and I'm in. I'm in. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for the kindness that you've shown in in the genius of your spirit to pen for all eternity this account. It is such rich truth to us. And yet it is humbling and convicting because your spirit is penetrating the crevices and dark places of our hearts and minds. And we know we don't love like this as we ought all the time. Yes, you have given us great victory in these things and yet we need a recalibration always. We do treat with casual attitude the marvelous and inexplicable grace of free and full forgiveness. How blessed is the man whose sin is covered and whose iniquity is forgiven. Lord, help us to live as though we are that blessed. Help us to have a lot of Psalm 96 moments where we tell of your wondrous deeds to one another that we might not forget. And may the undercurrent of our love for you flow fast and violent to worship you rightly and freely because we understand from what we've been saved and and the wrath of Almighty God. And we live in the full freedom and power of your Spirit to love you and others in that same way. Help us to do that, O God. May we not ever reflect the pride of Simon. We ask this for your grace and for your glory and the exaltation of your name. Amen.